Hey, welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, first, welcome. But second, what you need to know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are looking to grow your fundamentals, but to do it in bite-sized segments of time. Now, for our last two episodes, we had the opportunity to interview with Nikki. And if you have not tuned into those, you definitely need to listen to episodes 39 and 40 because the advice that she gives there can be career changing in the best of ways. So today we're going to zoom back into where we left off in terms of tissue healing, but it's a little bit different today because we're going to zoom in and talk about the meniscus of the knee. And normally I would start off being like, well, why would we even look at this? But honestly, we see this all the time in an orthopedic setting. You're going to see it conservatively. You're going to see it after surgery. And it's something to where we should probably have an understanding of its role and what happens when things are altered, how it affects the knee joint itself so that we can appropriately treat the patient and make sure that we maximize the function that we're trying to get them to return to. So Obviously, it's supposed to be a PT snack, right? So we can't cover everything today. We'll cover more in the future, I'm sure. But by the time you're done listening, you should know the basics of the anatomy of the meniscus, its role, the types of meniscal tears that we see, and also a basic overview of what do we do with them. So let's start off with what is the meniscus? So a lot of patients think of this as the cushion between their thigh bone and their knee bone. And it's kind of like that, but obviously there's more to it, right? So in our knee joint, we have our medial and lateral component between the femoral condyle and the tibial plateau. And we have our meniscus. It's made up of lots of cells. It's got a specialized extracellular matrix. In the meniscus itself, we have high water content. Like let's talk 65 to 70%. Some studies even say a little more. And then the rest is more of like extracellular matrix and cells. Um, and if we're looking at that remaining 25% or so, of that 25%, you've got most of it, collagens, as well as proteoglycans, non-collagenous proteins, glycoproteins, and elastin. Um, the cells here are called fibrochondrocytes because they kind of look like a mixture between fibroblasts and chondrocytes. And it also has region-specific innervation and vascularization. So fun fact, um, in case you ever decide to go on Jeopardy, the word comes from the Greek word meniscos, which means crescent. So they're kind of crescent-shaped. Now, there's two. There's medial and lateral, and we'll cover more in a second. But for both of these, the superior surface is more concave uh, for articulation with the convex femoral condyles. And it's flat for the tibial plateau, which we'll explain why in a second. Just stay tuned. But also diving into a little bit more of the anatomy, we have our medial meniscus, which is a little bit more broad posteriorly than anteriorly. And it only really moves about an average of two millimeters when you're going into knee flexion. Um, versus our lateral is going to look a little bit more circular and a little bit more uniform in its width from anterior to posterior. It'll occupy a larger portion of the articular surface, but it's also more mobile during flexion. It moves on average 10 millimeters anterior to posterior during flexion. And the reason why is 
for a combination of things, but there are attachments that keep the meniscus attached to the bones that they're on. So for the medial meniscus, you have like the deep portion of the medial collateral ligament that attaches to it. You also have transverse ligament that attaches both anterior horns of the menisci together. Um, whereas on the lateral, it's not concurrently, like it's not also attached to the lateral collateral ligament, like how the medial is connected to the MCL. Um, but it does have Humphrey and Riceberg ligaments that connect the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus to a location close to the insertion site of the PCL on the medial femoral condyle. And so just with less attachments, the lateral is going to move a little bit more. And that's why they speculate that the medial meniscus can get hurt more often just because it can get trapped, essentially. Obviously, trauma is another thing, right? So that is the meniscus. That's where it is. But let's talk about blood flow because hopefully if you've learned anything from the last few episodes, you've learned how important blood flow is for healing. So when we're born, everyone has a meniscus that is fully vascularized. It has all the nice blood flow. But by the time we're 10 years old, it's only vasculized in like 10 to 30% of it, which makes sense with its structure um, because it's meant to help us weight bear, right? So by the time we're at maturity, we only have blood vessels and nerves in the peripheral 10 to 25% if we're looking at the lateral meniscus and then 10 to 30% in the medial meniscus. So the outer portion is going to have more blood flow versus the inner portion. It's going to be a little thinner, more avascular, more aneural. And they're actually named by their blood flow. So there's zones. There's the red, red zone, which is the outer vascular and neural portion. And then the inner portion is the white, white zone, the completely avascular aneural. So on the red, red zone, it's thick, it's convex, it's attached to portions of the joint capsule. Um, the white, white zone is where a lot of permanent post-traumatic and degenerative lesions live. Now, in between that is the red, white region that kind of takes on characteristics of both. So if someone is having a tear, the location of where their tear is has an impact on how well they are likely to heal. Keep that in mind. Um, now, where does this blood flow come from? Well, when we're talking about blood flow, we have the medial, lateral, and middle geniculate arteries that branch off the popliteal artery, and they provide a lot of the major vascularization to the inferior and superior aspects of each meniscus. Okay, so that's blood flow. What about neuroanatomy? So there's a lot of nerves in the area. There's the posterior articular branch of the posterior tibial nerve. There's the terminal branches of the obturator and femoral nerves. Hopefully as I'm naming these off, you guys are picturing like some little anatomy nap in your head. But there's also for the lateral portion of the capsule, the recurrent peroneal branch of the common peroneal nerve. So you have input from a lot of different regions and that's something to keep in mind too um, with certain surgeries on their sensation that they feel. There's beyond innervation, there's mechanoreceptors, and these basically convert the physical stimulus of tension and compression into a specific electrical nerve impulse. It sends a message to the brain based on the amount of pressure that we feel. It's really cool. Or at least I think it's cool. But you've got three that are in the meniscus. So there's the Ruffini endings, Pacinian corpuscles, and Golgi tendon organs. Um, and 
maybe some of you guys haven't thought about these since PT school, but I'll give a little refresher really quick. Ruffini endings are type 1. They have a low threshold, and they're pretty slow to adapt to tension changes. Paxinian corpuscles are type 2, and they also have a low threshold, but they're fast to adapt. And then Golgi tendon organs are type 3. They're high threshold, and they're actually going to signal the brain when the knee joint basically gets to a terminal range of motion that is associated with neuromuscular inhibition, more so in the posterior horn, just to make sure that we are not moving or adding a pressure to our knee beyond what we're even able, capable of having. So hopefully everyone is with me. So basically we've just talked about what does the meniscus look like, where is it attached to, and how does it get the supplies that it needs for blood flow and innervation. So what does it even do? Well, honestly, back in the day, like I'm talking about earlier than the 1970s, we used to think that it was just like a functionless embryonic remnant. So what used to happen when someone had a meniscal tear is surgeons would just take the entire thing out and be like, ah, we don't really need that. But what we found out from studying the people that had this procedure done, they had a much more rapid rate of early degeneration of their knee joint. So we have realized since then the meniscus is really important for several things. So for load bearing, load transmission, shock absorption, helping to increase the congruence of the articulating surface of the knee joint, lubrication and nutrition of the articular cartilage, and it also helps convert vertical compressive forces into horizontal hoop stress. So kind of important, right? So with load-bearing, the intact menisci occupy like 60% of the contact area between the articular cartilage. So if your menisci is there, it helps support the, the cartilage. If it's not there, more pressure on the cartilage. Does that make sense? Um, now, load transmission, it actually transmits more than 50% of the total axial load that's applied to a joint, depending on the knee flexion angle and the tissue health. But for example... When you put a knee in 90 degrees of flexion and apply an axial load, the pressure in the joint is 85% greater than when in zero degrees of flexion. And so they help to transmit that. Now, if you're thinking about hoop stress, if you pictured a big bowl that wasn't going to move anywhere, if you hit it, it didn't get knocked off the counter, and then you had one of those like super bouncy balls, if you dropped it directly overhead from the bowl, would it bounce back up? No. It would bounce off of the edge of the bowl and go off in some other direction. So with our menisci, it helps to convert that vertical vector of force of axial load and basically redisperse it so that not all of that pressure is on one spot. It's pretty cool. Now, just to really reiterate this point of just how our menisci helped to control contact load. Paletta et al. found that if they took out the entire lateral meniscus in 10 cadaver knees, they saw a 50% decrease in total contact area and a 235 to 335% increase in peak local contact load. That is a ton. And then Kurosawa et al. saw after total meniscectomy, the tibiofemoral contact area decreased by like 50% and led to an overall increase in contact forces by two to three times. 
Even a partial meniscectomy, and the size they quoted was like 16 to 34%, that's been shown to lead to a 350% increase in contact forces on articular cartilage. So this may be something to keep in mind when we are educating patients on options. But let's talk about what happens if it gets injured. How did it get injured? Well, your patient, if they're coming into the clinic, they might complain about joint line pain, swelling, clicking, catching, locking, and giving way or buckling. And then if we assess it, we're going to basically poke along the joint line and palpate it. There's the flexion McMurray test and Apley's grind test and Thessaly test as just some examples of knee meniscal tests out there. But if we're talking about demographics, you're going to see these types of injuries more often in men. Um, it's actually one of the most common intraarticular knee injuries. So you're just, you're playing just going to see it. And then we can divide these into two groups of people. So if we're talking about younger people versus older people, the mechanisms are going to look a little different. So if we're talking about a young patient, their injury most commonly is sports-related, specifically football, basketball, soccer, baseball, skiing. They might have been doing some cutting and twisting. Maybe they did hyperextension of the knee or, um, as one research study quotes, vaguely, actions of great force. And in more than 80% of cases, it's also accompanied by an ACL tear. Now, in your older patients, it's often more so for long-term degeneration. And there's going to be a high prevalence of osteoarthritis on clinical and radiographic findings. And I'm, I'm talking about like 68 to 90% are going to have both. So it's important if they're having knee pain to see, can we even differentiate where their pain generator is coming from? Is the meniscal degeneration actually symptomatic or is it more of an arthritic aspect of things that we need to address? Now, these tears are going to be classified based on location, thickness, and stability. So if you remember back to just a mere moment ago when I was talking about like the red, red zones, red, white, that's one way where we can classify location. Red, 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 white, or white, white tears. They can also be classified by full thickness, um, which can be stable or unstable. And then also there's different tear patterns, which I would encourage you to look a picture up of this because a picture is worth a thousand words and podcasts are hard to visualize, especially if you just happen to be driving right now. But there's different patterns. There's vertical, longitudinal, which include like your bucket handle for this category. Another category is like your flat or oblique. Another one is your radial or transverse, and then horizontal or complex, which tends to be more degenerative. Now, tears in the avascular zone, we're talking about white-white, tend to be more complex, broad, and have a poorer prognosis after repair. So, now what? Now what do we do to fix this? So, Really, our goal is to try and preserve as much of the meniscus as possible. Because remember those cadaveric studies I just mentioned? Even just taking out a little amount has a huge impact on the contact forces that we see in the knee. So if possible, we try physical therapy, especially for tears that are in high vascularity zones of the meniscus. So like your red, red zone or a tear that's in the peripheral 30% of the medial or 25% of the lateral. And they're more likely to have success of healing if the tears are less than five millimeters and more stable. But 
Now, if we're talking about surgical aspects, two of the more popular ones are a meniscectomy or a meniscal repair. Now, we mentioned younger patients earlier. Younger patients are more likely to get a meniscal repair, and that's just because their prognosis is a little bit higher. Um, You tend to see higher activity levels and better functional outcomes with this surgery, but it needs to be in an area where there's a, a better prognosis of healing Um, or else there's a higher chance that the meniscal repair will fail. And there's different techniques. So some I'll mention are like the inside-out technique or all-inside technique. Those are some of the more popular ones that I've seen. There's also meniscal fixators and the outside-in approach. But let's say we're talking about a meniscal tear that's more degenerative, and there's nothing to sew up, really. It's not a good place. You can get a total meniscectomy where they're going to have probably a faster rate of OA, symptomatic various deformities that develop. You're going to have an arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, which is one of the more performed orthopedic procedures around the globe, Um, like super popular. Um, Or you can even see meniscal allografting. Or there's even some research studies that are uh, starting to study how meniscal allografts work as well as meniscal scaffolds that allow ingrowth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement. 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 Allow ingrowth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to mimic physiological replacement, allow in growth of tissue to This episode is sponsored by MedBridge. They deliver over 1,580 evidence-based physical therapy CE courses, including more than 7,000 specialized patient exercises available whenever you need them and wherever you are. And MedBridge is more than just CEUs. They're leading the space. So from interactive webinars led by top industry leaders to the first ever HEP patient mobile app. MedBridge has taken learning to the next level for over 200,000 PTs, OTs, ATs, SLPs, and nurses, and those they serve. So for a limited time, use the promo code PTSnackspodcast, again, you can see this below, in order to receive $175 off your annual subscription. 